The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's pivot now to another Washington, D.C.-centric story. That is the debt ceiling. Uh, there's a potentially a default. And kind of where are we in the negotiations? And what does it mean for the greenback here? So we're going to bring Audrey, Audrey Child Friedman. Freeman, she is the chief G10 FX strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence, and Dwayne Wright, senior government analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Dwayne, you you do this policy stuff full time for Bloomberg Intelligence here. I think the assumption in for all of us up here in in Wall Street is that ah, they'll work it out at the end. Is that a okay assumption, or or is there a material risk here of a bad outcome? Well, it's above zero. Uh, I wouldn't say it's above three or five percent, but there's always a risk. I think the general uh, mood right now is the meeting that Kevin McCarthy, the president, and the, the four leaders had was a positive first step. You can't have a second step without making that first step. And so we've already heard discussions about a second meeting, which is tomorrow. But in between the, the last meeting and, and this coming meeting, we know that staff for both sides are now beginning to have those conversations. What is the universe of policy items that we can talk about that will move the ball forward to avoid a default? And we, we kind of knew this was where we were going, uh, but we just had to have that first step. And so I think we'll see a, a bit more progress over the next couple of days where we'll begin to see what the universe of, of policies that can be included in a debt ceiling bill. So I think there's still a lot more confidence that this will happen. Uh, I, I, I just I would put aside what we see publicly and hear publicly from the leaders and, and start to think more about what's happening behind the scenes, what we're not hearing about. And, mm, and yeah. there seem to be a lot of positive conversations. Hey, Audrey, when we talk about this debt ceiling stuff, the budget, boy, the, I think right about the currency market here. What are we seeing in the currency market? What are we seeing with the U.S. dollar vis-a-vis other major currencies as we kind of fumble along towards trying to fund our government? Well, surprisingly, you may think surprisingly, not a lot in, in a sense that there's a lot of, of talk about this, this problem and this issue, but there's no sign of stress uh, in the sense that the FX volatility environment remains very low. And the dollar up until very recently has been trading very much in a range. So no strong conviction and, and certainly uh, no, no sign of stress uh, with regard to the uh, debt, debt limit situation. And I think it's just because the, the view is that uh, it will get solved in the end and, and we will get some kind of a compromise. And we've been there many times. And every, try, every time you try to trade the dollar on the back of this topic, um, you kind of go around circle and finish very, very much where you started. Audrey, to follow up on that, Kriti Gupta in New York, by the way, just uh, crashed Paul Sweeney's party here uh, in the Interactive Broker Studio. Audrey, I want to ask you a, a follow on the dollar question. It felt like for a while the dollar trade was dictated mostly by interest rate differentials as a function of the ECB and the hawkishness that you were still seeing on uh, in Europe, whereas the Federal Reserve is, is ending uh, their tightening cycle, or at least expected to. Does the bull case for the dollar change as we get closer to a potential debt default? Do people then buy the dollar uh, as the only safety around? Yeah, I think that's a very valid question because there's an element, I mean, we all know that if there was to be any kind of default, um, let's assume there was to be a default situation, even though this is not our working assumption, of course. But it, let's assume so. I mean, the long term consequences, it's pretty easy in a sense that it would be negative for the dollar. It would accelerate 
the de-dollarization uh, theme that we've been talking about, and, and that's pretty, pretty straightforward. In the short term, the other point that's uh, the other conclusion that's straightforward is that it would trigger a risk of market move across all asset classes, and I think actually that would be supportive for the dollar if you think about what the dollar usually do, do in terms of uh, risk of uh, market move. Um, but there is a flip side this time around in the sense that, you know, against currencies such as the euro, uh, the yen or the Swiss franc, low, low beta currency, FX currencies, you could actually argue that the market sees this as, you know, it's very much a US specific problem, even though the consequences are global. Uh, but it, it's just negative for the dollar against those currencies and therefore um, you know, it's debatable. There's an element of uncertainty as to to what extent it's it's negative for the dollar or positive in the very near term. Uh, as, as so, there's way around this, uh, you know, in terms of trading and in, tra in terms of use. Because if you just accept the fact that a default situation would trigger a risk of movement, right? Then you, you just you think about bullish low beta effects and bearish high beta effects and that's that's i think a very valid way to to think about it Dwayne, hop on in here in our last uh, 30 seconds or so and talk to us about this dollar story because it felt like when the dollar was just rising and rising and strengthening and strengthening there was a lot of i wouldn't say a lot but there was some pressure on the white house on the government to say is currency intervention something we need to explore in the kind of doomsday scenario of some sort of debt default. Is that a conversation you see perhaps returning? Uh, that remains to be seen. I think at, at the end of the day, uh, we will see a, a deal and it will likely be uh, at the last hour, maybe the last minute. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, uh, we'll see some low hanging fruit potentially in the, the last couple of hours where it's a short-term spending deal, or I'm sorry, short-term raise, and uh, maybe some re repealing or taking back of some unspent COVID money that kind of pushes off the conversations of these other pieces that uh, the White House and some other policymakers want to discuss. Uh, but I think that these conversations are probably likely going to happen after June right. as we get to our longer-term deal. All right. Very good stuff. Really appreciate that. Uh, Dwayne Wright, Senior Government Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. He's down in our Washington, D.C. office. And Audrey Child Freeman, Chief G10 FX Strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, she is uh, in our London office. I appreciate getting the update from both of them. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get the lady. You know, I just need to get, Critty, we need to, I think, just to get a little bit smarter here and just the bigger picture, what's going on with these markets. Because I've seen over the last several months, not a lot of direction, maybe not a lot of volume. I think the market's just trying to figure this stuff out. There's a lot of cross currents out there. Yeah. So let's bring a round table some of the really smart people let's that we it. have at our, uh, uh, you know, within our reach, our yeah. disposal. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And Cameron Kreiss, he's Bloomberg Macro Strategist. Uh, he joins us on the phone. Cameron, let's start with you. There's been, a, if I type in EcoGo, and just look over the last couple of weeks, man, there's been a lot of data here. And as you synthesize all that, what do you think the market's discounting in terms of growth, in terms of uh, inflation, in terms of the Fed? What's kind of the takeaway, do you think? Well, I think the market's primary conclusion is, is that the Fed is done uh, tightening interest rates. And that's um, generated, I guess, the expected um, reaction in equity and fixed income markets income has been rallying. Interest rate sensitive portions of the equity market uh, have been rallying. 
Um, if you look at the short-term interest rate market, there is this ongoing concern about the trajectory of the economy. Uh, we are pricing rate cuts starting sometime early in the second half of of the year. Um, and it really what it comes down to is the, the soft survey-based data, um, which ostensibly is forward-looking, uh, is pretty bad, uh, particularly on the business side, um, which kind of feeds through or, or is a natural consequence, I think, of this, these concerns about a credit crunch. The, the so-called hard data, uh, which is more backward-looking, has been relatively better. And so the big, the big question that everyone's trying to figure out is which, which will capitulate? Will the hard data sort of come down to the, to the, the growth concerns implied by the soft data, or will yeah. the hard data remain resilient and eventually the soft data sentiment type stuff will, will, will improve? Well, Gina, this is where I want to bring you in. He's talking about the soft data, the hard data, this divergence uh, that the Fed is, at the end of the day, done um, mm-hmm. w- with with hiking. Yet we're still looking at inflation at 4.9%. Mm-hmm. If the carnage of the equity market uh, is kind of in the rearview mirror, what are we missing here? The Fed's yeah. done tightening. Uh, earnings recession is in the rearview mirror. Why are we not seeing more green on the screen? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it really comes down to the differences between the inflation indicators and the growth indicators. The inflation indicators are coming off of a peak and that's enabling some uh, perception of margin stability finally emerging in the index. Remember, we got into this mess not because growth was slowing down, but because inflation was spiking. And that created the downdraft in earnings results uh, over the course of the last year, really through the S&P 500 anyway, into a pretty profound earnings recession Because growth held up, nobody seemed to notice that earnings recession, but the market absolutely noticed the earnings recession, and it was really perpetuated by spiking inflation. Now that inflation has started to ease off, even though it's still high, as you correctly note, it is still trending in the right direction. That's enabling this sort of margin stability to emerge. PPI is rising at a slower pace than CPI. Finally, that's creating some stability. But at the same time, the market is now saying, okay, the inflation monster is starting to look somewhat contained, but what does the growth monster look like going forward? And how, how much of that deceleration and growth has actually been priced in the market? And I think that's why you have this natural constraint on upside that has emerged is, yes, inflation does appear to be somewhat more contained than we were thinking. Yes, we do think the Fed has likely gone to a pause state but will we actually see growth decelerate now? And what will that mean for earnings going into 2024? Cameron, you know, I don't know about this inflation story, but I just paid $60 for a New York strip steak in Midtown Manhattan on on Tuesday night. That's inflation to me. But be that as it may, are you in that camp that thinks this Fed feels like it's tamed inflation or is it the point of of taming inflation and, in fact, can start cutting rates later in the year? Uh, I think, I mean, taming inflation is, uh, I mean, maybe a bit of a – Bit of bit of a push. Uh, I think the the trend is towards uh, less inflation looking forward than we've had in in the past. In in the CPI report we had this week, for example, the the so-called super core, which is core services excluding housing, that rose only 0.1 percent on the month. And yeah, you can always say, well, yes, if you strip out everything that goes up, then of course there's no inflation. Uh, and I'm cognizant of that. But this is still the, one of the lowest readings we've had um, over, over the last 18 months. And, and ultimately, it, what, what it comes down to is if uh, interest rates do bite, and they tend to bite in, in a nonlinear fashion, i.e., historically, the impact of a tightening cycle is very, very gradual until it becomes not gradual, and then it becomes very, very substantial very, very quickly. Um, And I think what we've seen in the banking sector certainly risks that same thing happening again this time around. And if and as that does materialize, and I think the the arguments in favor of interest rate uh, uh, cuts by the end of the year um, will be reasonably persuasive. And certainly, if you look at a, a panoply of economic and market indicators, they are consistent with, with uh, the Fed cutting yeah. rates within the next six months. Okay, well, if the Fed hypothetically doesn't cut rates within uh, the six months, which, as, as Cam pointed mm-hmm. out, is, is something that is still expected in the markets, Gina, uh, 
I'm still confused about where the bare case for equities really lies. At the yep. end of the day, um, to, to me, what I think is so striking is that if we're talking about a decelerating growth environment from an economic perspective, as, as Cam just laid out, isn't that the ideal time to hop into growth stocks? Isn't that when they thrive most? Yeah, I think you make a really very good point because whether or not the Fed is able to reverse is reverse rates is a very controversial topic in the equity market right now, um, mostly because we have seen valuation expansion in some of those growthy type names, or the, uh, another way to think about it is the longer duration stocks that are most sensitive to interest rates, specifically in the U.S. have outperformed. Intriguingly, that's not been the case globally. So this is more of a U.S. specific risk than it is a global risk, but nonetheless, the stocks that are most sensitive to that reversal have led the rally so far this year in many cases, in particular in tech and communication stocks, which are, you know, have had a magnificent year so far this year coming off of a really rough year last year. I think whether or not the Fed reverses is also intermingled with how deep the recession is or how much the slowdown becomes. And that is consequential for equity markets because not only is it the Fed that drives equity markets, but it's yeah. also earnings trends. So if the Fed is unable to reverse policy simply because growth is still quite strong, yeah. that's not necessarily a bad environment for equities. If the right. earnings sort of cycle is working in favor of equities later this year and into 2024, and the Fed is keeping interest rates stable because economic growth is somewhat stable, I don't think that's a terrible environment for stocks. But you're right. Is it a great environment for stocks? No, because stocks are accustomed to these big swings in the cycle. Yeah. And stocks tend to get their greatest momentum surges on major disruptions. Yeah. And so far, the only major disruption we had was inflation. We have not had a major disruption to growth. Yeah. Um, will we get it? Still seems likely to, for most investors. And that's creating a headwind in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, but if we don't get it and growth turns out to be better than, than expected, then we could continue to see these relatively modest gains in the equity market continue. So it sounds like a little bit more, kind of more of the same maybe. So we'll have to see. Uh, Gina Martin-Adams, uh, Chief Equity Strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence uh, and Bloomberg Macro Strategist, Cameron Kreiss. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate getting the collective wisdom of you too as we try to make sense uh, of this market. Uh, again, the uh, S&P 500 off five-tenths of 1%. The Dow off a little bit more, off a, a solid 1% on the Dow Jones Industrials. Uh, just looking at the yields here uh, coming in a little bit, the 10-year Treasury is off six basis points, 3.37 on your 10-year uh, Treasury. I'm going to also call out, we've been calling out the, and focusing on energy for the past couple of weeks, seen some big swings there. WTI crude oil down 2.3% today. WTI crude oil just under $71 a barrel, so we'll keep an eye on that. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Want to get over to real estate? Because if you walk around Midtown Manhattan like I am wont to do as I walk back to Penn Station from the east side, a lot of empty office buildings uh, around Midtown. I don't know how you fix this. They're talking about people living in them. I, I don't know how it's going to work. But Natalie Wong, she's a real estate reporter at Bloomberg News. She's got a very interesting story. Uh, some of these empty buildings are starting to attract some buyers, but not the institutional buyers that we're used to. Natalie, who's stepping in and taking a look at some of this New York City uh, empty office space? Hi, thanks for having me. We're seeing um, big interest coming in from the smaller companies, smaller developers, family offices even, and family-run firms who are really seeing that New York City is going to come back in the long term and have some belief that there will be use for office space, even though right now, as you mentioned, with all the empty buildings, record high vacancies, it seems like it's a risky bet to make. Yeah, what is the evidence, uh, Natalie, that they are using to justify that bet? You know, a lot of them are really looking at this remote work as something that will bounce back. Um, companies will need to use offices to bring people back to the office. And so far, the offices that they're targeting aren't necessarily the dilapidated, distressed offices. They're more the middle class buildings that you might see, well-located streets, 
Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue. And for those who don't know New York, you know, those are streets that people come to for retail. They're well-known office districts. Um, and they just kind of want to be able to own a slice of that market that they might otherwise never have had the opportunity to because, you know, in previous years during peak times, even just Two years ago, uh, the buyers that were bidding for those sites were the big uh, real estate investment trusts. They were the big institutions like the Brookfields, like PIMCO-owned companies. And these guys would have never had the opportunity to even compete. And now you're seeing prices down 26% in Manhattan from the peak valleys of 2017. And no one else wants these buildings right now. So you have these individuals that are sitting on huge piles of cash that are looking for longer-term uh, return investments and are seeing these assets as potential properties that they could get into the market now and and figure it out as as you know the the market shifts. So, Natalie, one of the challenges I know in the commercial real estate real estate space here in New York City is that we don't really know what the values are because we haven't had a lot of transactions. The expectations are that the values have come down pretty substantially, but we don't know. Are we seeing any activity from from some of these, you know, new buyers? Yes, we are. Uh, so we looked at the second half of last year and saw that of the few transactions, there were 11, uh, over $50 million. Of the 11, seven involved uh, smaller companies, smaller developers, family-run firms. Some were backed by institutional capital, but these deals were really driven by these smaller guys, which is a huge difference from just the first half of last year. And the past two years, most of those deals were dominated by the big REITs, the big institutions, and the big New York City developers. Um, and if we dive deeper into those seven deals that these folks were involved in, quite a few of them involved offices that had pretty high vacancies and that were a big discount um, from sales in previous quarters. So, for example, there was a consortium of uh, family-run businesses that bought 1336 uh, Avenue, Avenue of the Americas. They bought this office building from RxR and Blackstone, um, and they bought it for uh, roughly $320 million dollars last year uh, and that's a discount from what rxr and investors paid for more than a decade ago in 2010 at 400 million dollars so you're seeing oh, these pricing discounts already happen another example that i can point out is this february uh, a consumer's products firm enchante accessories not a big consumer's products firm bought a madison avenue building uh, that a PIMCO-owned company purchased back in 2017 at the peak of the market. Uh, they purchased it at an 11, $11 million discount from what the PIMCO-owned company had purchased it for back in 2017. At that point, they had you know, leased it out entirely to WeWork shortly after. We saw what happened with WeWork. Uh, the building basically sat vacant for the past two years during the pandemic, and this consumer products company just decided to come in buy the entire building and they're going to lease part of it to themselves, um, the rest is yet to be seen. But you're seeing them really see these deals. And I think the biggest question is, is that enough of a discount um, yep. to really show how much office values are going to fall? Some institutions think it's going to fall a bit further. So they're on the sidelines waiting to see when that'll happen before they come in. But there's a lot of dry powder waiting for these distressed deals. And you have some of these smaller guys going like, OK, you know what? We can make this deal work for us right now. We don't know when the international money or the institutional capital is going to come flowing back to the market. So we might not have to call the bottom. We might think it's just a good idea to step in now. In our final minute here, Natalie, what are you anticipating the potential upside is? Let's say that these guys are right and they're gonna, you know, um, win on this. Can you talk to me about what some of the potential upside might look like in terms of dollars here? Great. I mean, a lot of these guys really bought the building at such a low basis that for them, they just really have to bet on the fact that there will be some kind of tenant that will want to come back to the office. And we're already seeing that start to happen in certain cases, right? I mean, in New York, most of the leases that had happened that were widely publicized were the big skyscrapers in Hudson Yards by Grand Central, um, the big finance and tech firms. But, you know, three years into the pandemic or post-pandemic, we're seeing that some firms do want to bring people back. It might not be in a full-time basis, but they still need an office space. So these guys are betting that you know, it may not be the most expensive rents that they'll command, but they'll be able to capture the middle market, people that want to be near uh, transit stations, people that will still eventually want a space for their workers. 
Uh, 30 seconds here, uh, Natalie. Where are they getting the money from? Are they using any debt capital or is this all just equity? That's the biggest question, right? Because people can't really access debt and banks certainly do not want to expose themselves more to offices, let alone older offices that these people are buying. And so a lot of these guys are really getting it from big cash piles that they're getting from uh, generational wealth they've built up from their businesses, or they're also getting uh, family offices that are investing in them and buying it. So some of these guys are able to come in and buy all cash um, in certain instances because of you know how big their private businesses are. They do have those deep banking relationships with lenders who are able to trust them um, as a borrower. And then in some cases, they're even expo exploring uh, seller financing. Wow, interesting. Really fascinating story because, again, you walk around Midtown Manhattan and the tourists are back. Yeah. You got to ask yourself, when are the employees coming back, if at all, and to what degree? And what does that mean for the real estate and all the local businesses around uh, those office buildings that are impacted by the lower or, or fewer workers in? Natalie Wong, real estate reporter for Bloomberg News. And, folks, what you just heard was some really seasoned well-researched reporting right there that's about as good as it gets uh with all the details there so we appreciate getting a few minutes uh from natalie uh and talking about this real estate business here in new york other parts of the country doing a lot better some still some challenges here particularly in midtown the countdown has begun this may a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the qatar economic forum powered by bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Madison and I were just talking about it. Like, you know, during my 30 years on Wall Street, one of the most amazing, uh, I think, developments has been the development of the private credit business, the private debt market. It's been really just fascinating. People, I think, have a general understanding of private equity, but I think not so clear a understanding of the private debt market. So let's get an expert on here to kind of give us the latest. Anthony Fobel, he's the CEO of Arkmont Asset Management. He's got a lot of experience on the on the street in the city of London, uh, working in this side of the business. Anthony, again, it's been such a, a great uh, growth story, the development and evolution of this market. Tell me about Arkmont Asset Management. How do you guys play in this space? How do you view the private debt market? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. And um, yes, it's been an extraordinary period of growth, um, particularly actually in, in Europe, because although private debt existed in the US before the global financial crisis, it really only came about following the financial crisis uh, in Europe, uh, because for historical reasons, all lending uh, was done by banks. Uh, and we know all about the problems the banks had after the GFC. Uh, and we've seen many of those um, issues starting to repeat again. And essentially what private debt firms did is they attracted institutional capital to step into that significant financing gap um, that was left by the banks. Um, and it's been a tremendous growth story as banks have retreated from mid-market lending in Europe. It's something that happened many years ago in the US, but is, is really only a 10-year phenomenon in, in Europe. Um, this created a significant void, and, and private debt firms have been more than happy, as of their investors, um, to, to, to fill that void. So does does that mean, given what you just said about the growth being better today than even following 08, where are, your, where are you seeing that in Europe specifically, and why do you think Europe is a better bet for private debt than the U.S.? Yeah, so, so there are... I have to say it's very positive in both the U.S. and Europe. But the fundamental trends are the same, although somewhat accentuated in Europe. The trends are sort of banks retreating from lending. But as we've seen over the last three to four years, particularly in Europe, there's been tremendous volatility in the liquid markets, particularly the leveraged loan and high yield markets. And it's remarkable to think that really the liquid markets in Europe have effectively been shut since February 2022 for new issuance. And what that's meant is, is leading private equity firms with plenty of dry powder uh, are struggling to finance those deals in now both the bank market and the liquid markets. 
And that's presented a tremendous opportunity, particularly, I think, in Europe, for private debt firms to step in. And as the asset class has grown, firms such as Altman have got larger and larger. We now manage about $25 billion in assets under management. And that's given us the firepower to do not just the historic bank substitution deals, but now increasingly liquid market substitution deals. So, and, yeah. No, go, go ahead, Anthony. I was just going to ask, where are you seeing deal activity across Europe these days, given kind of, boy, all the uncertainty we see out there, and particularly in Europe where you guys deal on a more close basis with the uncertainty in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly um, there has been a slowdown in deal activity, particularly by private equity firms, uh, and it's been a global phenomenon. But make no mistake about it, there's still tremendous deal activity taking place. And the sort of levels of M&A activity we're seeing um, are really back to the, the 2018-19 level. So, you know, still pretty active markets. What's been really interesting for private debt, however, is that we are pretty much the only game in town uh, to be able to finance those deals. So ironically, while you've seen overall deal volumes drop, um, the, the deal volumes that, that, that the likes of Arkmont and other European managers have seen has actually skyrocketed. Um, and, and it really is, for us, uh, I mean, I'll touch on your, your macro point, but for us, it, it has been the perfect market because we've seen volumes up for the reasons I've just said. We've seen significant price improvements uh, as a result of um, really euro-ball rates going from 0% to now over 4%. Spreads have widened as well. So we're sort of generating 12% type yields on senior debt loans, which is which is phenomenal. We've also seen lower leverage multiples. And because we're doing these liquid market substitution deals, much higher quality companies, mm. which, which is, leads me on directly to the point you raised about the macro picture. Um, you know, we, we as an industry have tended to focus on non-cyclical businesses anyway. So typically, this, the industry in Europe is very much skewed towards IT services, very steady, stable businesses, healthcare, education, uh, and steered away from some of the more cyclical sectors. And of course, those are the deals that are still being done. And I do have to say that, you know, compared to perhaps even four months ago, the economic picture in Europe has improved very markedly. Right. You know, the, the, the key three issues around um, uh, rising inflation, high energy costs, that energy prices are now back to where they were before the Ukraine crisis. So you're seeing inflation fall as you are seeing in Europe. Um, you, we're, we're seeing supply chains ease up um, as, as China drops its zero COVID policy. And a lot of the tight labor markets that we've experienced both in Europe and the US have similarly eased. So, you know, whereas once people were talking about European recessions, um, no one's talking about that at the moment. It's very much um, European growth, not, not stellar growth, but, but, right. You know, that's fine. So, Anthony, from the perspective of raising capital, capital being allocated to this asset class, you know, I remember when interest rates were so low, you guys offered a pretty nice return. How How is it now that rates have risen? So it, it's a very good point. You know, the way we always positioned ourselves is offering a premium return to the liquid markets, which, as you correctly say, wasn't difficult when, particularly in Europe, the liquid markets were generating practically nothing. One of the great attractions of the asset class, though, is that all of our loans are floating rate loans. So as we've seen uh, interest rates go up in response to rising inflation, that translates directly into higher returns for investors. And as I said, you know, if you look at euro ball rates plus the margin we're generating plus fees, you know, we're generating 12% yields on very safe wow. senior debt. And that, that is a, a pretty unprecedented... Yep. Um, uh, situation in my experience. Yeah, that is, I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> that 12% will stick up when you're looking at the uh, 10-year treasury at 3.38%. Anthony, thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your time. We know you're uh, very busy there. Anthony Fobel, he's the CEO of Arkmont Asset Management. As he mentioned, $25 billion in assets under management, and that is just another example uh, of the growth of the private credit business, the private debt business, 
really since, as uh, Mr. Fobel said, since really the end of the great financial crisis. So glad we could get a few minutes of Anthony's time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We do want to go to Ira Jersey. He covers uh, all the interest rate stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, so, Ira, again, Eco Go. I typed that into my Bloomberg terminal. Man, is there a lot of stuff out there for markets to digest. Uh, give me your takeaway of the, the PPI data that we saw today. How important is that for you and all your fellow kind of interest rate geeks? Well, so m- most of the data that we've seen does suggest that the inflation continues to slow, right? And, to, and this morning's numbers um, certainly suggest that that's uh, continuing to be the case. And, and I think PPI being a little bit better, you know, is certainly g- going to be something that, uh, you know, policymakers are going to take into account. And, and when you look at things like PPI final demand being up only 2.3% year on year now, uh, you know, that doesn't seem so bad. The The issue is, is how much um, of this is going to wind up coming out of prices that we already see in uh, on the shelves, right? So, so, so the good thing about this PPI number is it tends to have a pretty good relationship with um, uh, with with, uh, with margins, with corporate margins. So, if you take core CPI and core PPI and, and you map that to margins, um, it means that that margins actually could not go down as quickly as some people are thinking they might. So the markets are pricing in those rate cuts, Ira. Uh, where in the data this week are you seeing evidence that the Fed may not be ready to cut rates at least until you know the end of this year? Well, I think the CPI numbers yesterday were pretty clear on that point. You know, it's funny that the market rallied as much as it did on numbers that basically came in as expected. Right. Um, I, I think people were just fearful that that the numbers were going to come in a little bit better. But when you look at yesterday's CPI data, one of the you know, if you think about what a 0.4% month-on-month print is, if we were to get that for the entire year, that would be almost a 5% um, uh, year-on-year CPI. So if if that's the case, and, and it doesn't seem like that's necessarily going to slow down significantly because looking at some of the details, um, th- then the Federal Reserve is not going to be cutting interest rates later this year. And what's interesting is, you know, when, when you look at WIRP, you look at Fed Funds Futures, you look at SOFR Futures, those are the new, the new LIBOR-based futures that are called SOFR on the, on the secured overnight financing rate. It's saying, yes, the Fed's going to cut. But, but if you look under the hood and you look at the options markets and what options markets are pricing, they're actually pricing an unchanged Fed or a Fed that's going to cut 150 basis points by the end of the year. Nothing in between. So the, so the interesting thing about that is, is the market's either saying, hey, there might be a disaster, credit crunch, a full-on financial crisis, or inflation's going to remain pretty high and the Fed's not going to do anything. So, so we have to keep in mind that... that this doesn't always happen, but right now there's a, what, what I call a bimodal distribution where it's basically unchanged or deep cuts. It's not really two or three cuts this year as the market's currently pricing. Well, I mean, I felt so proud of myself, Ira, when I learned the WERP function and I kind of understand what it means. Now you're telling me that it's not that representative? Well, it's representative of the of, uh, – it, it, it's basically the weighted average of the potential outcomes. So it's not the base case outcome. That, that's kind of what I'm saying, is that there's basically two base cases, and one is for massive cuts, and the other one is for uh, unchanged. Mm-hmm. So the WIRP function is, remember, it's going to tell you, and, and this is what Fed Funds Futures are going to do, or a lot of the other short-term instruments we use to judge what the market's thinking for, uh, for monetary policy. And, and that's, that's, you know, what's the average? Now, normally it's, it's normally, dist- usually, I should say, it's normally distributed. And, uh, you know, that, that's what happened on the way up. Like most people thought, oh, they're going to hike, you know, to 4.5% to 5.5% with the average being 5%. You know, that, that was kind of where what we were pricing on the way up. But now it, there's a lot less certainty about the path of, of future monetary policy, whether it's, you know, when the Fed's going to start cutting, how, how deep they're going to cut, if they do cut. And, and I think what the market's suggesting and using the options market and what it's suggesting right now is that, 
you know, if the Fed cuts, it's going to cut very aggressively because there's a crisis. And, and that's where, you know, this couple of, uh, you know, they're not going to cut 25 basis points twice, right? They're going to cut right. 50 basis right. points several times if they start to cut. So, Ira, I want to get your take on that big debt ceiling debate while we have you here. Uh, you mentioned the instruments you use to look at Fed moves. Uh, I wonder, when you look at the Treasury space in particular, is the debt ceiling messing up that instrument for you? <laughs> it is It is a bit, yeah. I mean, if you think about where what, what the market's pricing right now, and you look at short-term Treasury bills that mature before June, um, they're 100 basis points below the Fed funds rate, like or 100 and, uh, now 150 basis points below the Fed funds rate in some some cases. That that's not typical, and the reason for that is you have money market mutual funds that need to own those because they don't want to own June or July bills because they're worried that June or July bills might have a delayed payment. And for money market funds that have to insure daily liquidity, even a one-day delay in payment is massively painful for them. So you, you look at the, the June 8th or the June 13th T-bills trading at 5.4%, 5.5%. That's not saying that the Fed's going to hike interest rates next week, which is what you'd normally think it's implying. It's implying that the market is worried that the, that the government is not going to pay its bills early in June. So going to that point, Ira, and Maddie, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but this is how deep into the weeds Ira and his team are. You guys have a model that kind of predicts when they when the government runs out of money. I don't, I don't want to know how this model works. I just <laughs> want to know kind of, A, do you have this model, and, and what is it telling you? Yeah, so it's a, it's a daily model where we estimate what government spending and revenue is going to be and then how much cash at the end of the day the, the government has. And we show that it, it is exactly the June 6th and June 8th T-bills that are most at risk of a, uh, of a government default. Um, and and the, the government could squeak by, and, and we're, you know, these sound like big numbers when you say words like billions, but when you have a $7 trillion budget, you know, a couple of billion dollars is, is <laughs> a rounding error. But if we get just a couple of billion dollars, $2 billion a week for the next three weeks on the Friday payrolls data and, and taxes go up a little bit, then suddenly we can make it to June 15th. And then June 15th, there's a $100 billion in corporate taxes that are going to occur. And then there's, so there's like this rolling issue with with where we are in the debt ceiling debate so people who say like you know they uh, i know i know um speaker mccarthy said that he didn't believe the june 6th date he should believe the june 6th date because <laughs> it's accurate but if we make it to june 15th then we make it to july 30th and i think that's what some members of congress are hoping and that's what some people's models are saying um yeah my models been pretty good so i would <laughs> suggest that there is a risk in early june so i what you're telling me is my government our government lives paycheck to paycheck, kind of? They're living, they're your paycheck to paycheck because they need you <laughs> nice. to pay a little bit more in taxes over the next couple of weeks in order to make it to the June 15th corporate tax date. That is truly how the sausage is made yep. in terms of financing this government right there. And Ira and his team, they have a model, a financial model, like a spreadsheet kind of thing that kind of does so cool. it for them on a daily basis. Um, and that's how good their work is. Ira Jersey, he covers all the rates and stuff and keeps an eye on the U.S. Uh, you know, checkbook and, and wallet and stuff like that. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Lots of inflation data coming out uh, this week, giving more food for thought for our Federal Reserve. Uh, let's check in with an economist who uh, thinks about this stuff, too. Lydia Boussour, senior economist, EY Parthion, uh, joins us here. So, Lydia, CPI data, PPI data, how, what's your inflation call, given kind of some of the data we got this week? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so the inflation data that we got uh, this week uh, confirmed that, that the inflation process uh, is well underway and is continuing. And uh, it's not just about you know, the, the, the CPI report we saw this morning. Producer price inflation is uh, pointing to some disinflation happening. Import price inflation is also showing some um, outright deflation. And so uh, it does look like all the pieces are falling into place for that disinflation process to accelerate uh, in the second half 
half of the year, we are also seeing a turn in house prices and some loosening in labor market conditions with uh, wage growth uh, also beginning to show some moderation. So we do expect to see uh, disinflation accelerating uh, in, in the second half. Uh, we have you know, headline inflation falling back um, towards 3% by the end of the year, a little bit of 3%. We could see a 2% handle uh, by the end of the year and core inflation a little bit above 3%. And, and that you know, still leaves inflation above the Fed's 2% target, uh, but that's, um, that's likely to be um, a faster disinflation that some, than some are anticipating right now. Hey, when you look at uh, the core services, less shelter, uh, health insurance and airfares that you were just touching on a little bit, that moved up a little bit, right? Does that concern you at all when it comes to the stickiness question of this inflation? I mean, in terms of uh, the stickiness, we are seeing on the core services side of the economy. We know that uh, that is, you know, tied to also um, some of the tightness that we are seeing in the labor market. Uh, we got the jobs report last week, which uh, showed some renewed pressure on on the wage growth front and and also uh, the unemployment rate remaining remaining, you know, historically low. Uh, but we also know that, um, as I said, you know, a number of labor market indicators are pointing to um, a loosening in labor market. Conditions and um, and you know jobless claims have been trending higher. Uh, we saw an upside breakout this morning, um, and we are also seeing slower labor demand uh, in in the labor market. We are seeing less churn and less people quitting their jobs uh, on a monthly basis, um, and so that should you know allow for some disinflation to happen in the services sector. And at the same time, um, we also know that some of that uh, shelter inflation uh, will also turn um, in in the coming months. Uh, we've seen some moderation, we'll likely past peak, uh, but for that disinflation to um, fall, you know, with accelerating momentum, we're likely to have to wait, you know, a few more months. Uh, and that will likely uh, be a, a, a key factor driving services inflation down in, in the second half of the year. Lydia, uh, once again, it appears that the U.S. government is having a little problem uh, with its checkbook, paying its bills, debt ceiling, all that kind of stuff. This is starting to come to a head here. How is that factoring in? How's that risk factoring into your economic uh, forecast and outlook? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the stakes are um, really high, as you know. Um, given you know the fact that we're not seeing a lot of willingness to compromise at the moment, and that's putting you know a risk to the economy and financial market, and adding a layer of complication on top of you know the, the stress we have seen in the banking sector, and on top of the fact that we are already in an economy that is slowing down and uh, downshifting. What we're likely to see uh, in the coming uh, weeks is essentially the pressure um, you know rising in financial markets with rising financial market volatility. We're likely to see a hit to confidence as well uh, on, on business and consumer confidence. Uh, and, and all of that is likely to exacerbate the slowdown that we're seeing in the economy right now. Uh, so certainly uh, adding some downside risk to the economy. Uh, we are expecting to see a recession unfolding by the middle of the year. Um, and, you know, the, the, this, um, this downshift in, in economic activity that's already visible uh, in many sectors of the economy uh, could be, you know, deeper uh, as a result of um, of, of this situation. I wonder then, you, you talk about the debt ceiling issue and you mentioned in there the stress in the banking sector. What do you think the outlook in terms of the impact is from that stress that we're maybe um, underestimating when we, when we look at the economic picture? I think, you know, uh, in terms of the, the impact on, on the banking sector, what we've learned over the past few weeks is that uh, this is still ongoing. Uh, we're still seeing some stress uh, in, in the banking sector and that um, we don't know for sure how much credit tightening is currently in the pipeline. But we know that as a result of, um, of these turbulences, banks have become more wary of lending. And we were already seeing that tightening in credit condition in lending standards uh, before this you know banking stress emerged so um, what we're likely to see is that credit tightening filtering into the economy in the next six months in the next 12 months and that's likely to lead um, consumers and businesses to be uh, even more um, cautious with the with their um, the hiring for businesses and spending as well so it will weigh on on the economy and we factor that in into our outlook and um, and we have you know um, as I as I mentioned you know a recession unfolding 
uh, in the middle of the year and, and some of that weakness lingering into 2024. So one of the areas, Lydia, that has held up remarkably well, at least to me, it seems like, is this, this labor market, you know, 3.4% unemployment. I mean, the Fed, ide- you know, I think perversely would like to see that number higher. Where do you think unemployment goes? What's your view of, of the labor market here in the United States? Yeah, we're definitely getting mixed messages in terms of, of the labor market and mixed signals. I think it's very important to take a step back and look at the broad set of labor market indicators. Uh, we got the jobs report last week, and if you take it um, at the headline level, you saw pretty solid uh, job creation and also the unemployment rate um, very low and that renewed pressure on, on wage growth, which points to a seemingly tight and, and resilient labor market. But if you dig a little bit deeper in, in the report, there were some signs that uh, the labor market is loosening. If you look at the diffusion of, of job creation, uh, the breadth of job creation, it has declined quite significantly. So job growth has become less broad-based. If you look at um, layoffs, they've been creeping higher as well. And and our conversations with, with businesses um, as well is pointing to more strategic hiring decisions. We're seeing strategic layoffs as well. And labor demand has come back down significantly as well. So so the downshift in, in the labor market um, is happening, and what we're expecting to see is essentially companies pulling back even further on on, uh, on hiring in the coming months. Uh, we are expecting to see the unemployment rate rising towards 4.5% by the end of the year, and we are also expecting to see some layoffs happening, um, likely around you know 900,000 to a million jobs uh, lost this year. Um, but it won't be the same kind of environment we were in in 2000. 2008, and we're not expecting to see the same kind of broad-based layoffs uh, in, in the labor market. Up to a million jobs lost feels like, I know it's a drop in the bucket when it comes to the population of the U.S., but that feels like a mildly significant number. Where can we look to see indications of that starting in terms of the layoffs picture? Yeah, we are already seeing some signs that um, layoffs are creeping up. Uh, jobless claims have been trending up since the beginning of the year. Um, we've heard, um, you know, if you look at job cut mentions uh, in earnings uh, calls, there was also a rise in, uh, in these mentions. And if you look at other surveys as well, uh, they are showing that job cuts are also um, increasing. So um, we can, you know, there are a number of indicators that are already indic- indicating this. These are not broad-based layoffs, um, and that's why it's not showing up uh, just yet and 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 they're not broad based we've seen pockets of weakness appearing essentially in the labor market um, and some of these pockets of weakness have appeared in those sectors of the economy that had been hiring quite significantly during the pandemic. Uh, they've been, you know, um, facing very strong consumer demand and they've been, they really overdid it uh, in some in some of these sectors in terms of hiring and, and they have now had to recalibrate their workforce. Uh, we, the retail sector is, is one example in, in uh, um, but, you know, more yep. generally, I think, sectors in general and and businesses in general will have to adjust to the slower demand environment and and slower economic environment that we will face in the next six months all right lydia thank you so much for joining us really appreciate getting your thoughts lydia busour she's a senior economist at ey partheon uh calling for you know a slowdown this economy recession later this year perhaps in into next year um and that seems to be a building consensus i guess the question really remains for a lot of folks is you know, how prolonged would that recession be? How deep would that recession be? Uh, I guess we will certainly find out going forward. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Todd Lockman joins us. He's the CEO and president of Sovos brand. Sovos is a NASDAQ listed stock. S-O-V-O is the ticker. It's hitting a 52-week high today. Uh, so a good time to get out and start chatting about the story, I guess. The stock is up uh, 34% year-to-date. It's got a market cap of just under $2 billion. Stock's up 5% today. Uh, Todd, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you guys, before we get to your earnings, just give us a, a sense of what you guys do at Sovos Brands. What brands do you own? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Great to uh, great to be on the show. So the brands that we own are the Rayos brand, nice. um, which is pasta, soup, 
frozen entrees, dry pasta, just launching into pizza. We can talk about that. Nusa yogurt, absolutely delicious, thick, velvety, uh, one-of-a-kind yogurt in the yogurt category. And then Michelangelo's, which is uh, premium frozen Italian cuisine and also just launched uh, a mid-price sauce brand under the Michelangelo's. But we're a high-growth food company founded in 2017, really pioneering a new approach to packaged food that centers on premium, high-quality, delicious products and brands with authenticity at their core and really try, try to drive, as you can see, that we're delivering you know, growth that's really uh, unique and disproportionate for the, uh, for the category. So, Todd, as Paul was mentioning, a pretty great year for you, pretty great earnings as well. Um, what is your favorite data point from your stellar earnings that you'd like to call out? What are you most proud of? Sure. Thanks, Madison. I, well, there's a few, and I'm not trying I mean, we had, as you saw, we couldn't be more thrilled with the uh, Q1 results. I mean, I, the first area that I'd highlight is volume, volume-driven 27% organic growth. So 16% volume, 11% price. How did you and do I that, think- Todd? I'm sorry to jump on you here, but that sure. to me, that's what stuck out to me as well. And it seems like volume surging over price in the inflationary environment we're in is really a, a substantial metric here. What was your uh, secret sauce to that? No pun intended. No, it's a, well, I think it was probably kind of intended, but it's good. I do it all the time. But uh, not, not many. Oh, and, and as you pointed out, not many. We show we have a slide in our earnings deck. Uh, if you look at our peers, they're declining in volume, averagely 4%. So just as you said, it is very unique for the industry. And we're doing that really driving the Rayo's mega brand. We Part of our philosophy is we acquire under-penetrated brands, taste superiority in the category, very unique. I apologize for the train here going across the tracks in Berkeley, California. But um, uh, really, when you take these brands that are under-penetrated, we're driving significant distribution gains. So Rayo's for particular, we had the largest quarterly household penetration gain that we have in three years on that brand. So the sauce now 13% on the heels of 22% distribution uh, increases. So even though we acquired this brand in 2017, we're still putting distribution points on the board for the sauce business, as well as driving significant growth in our dry pasta, soup, and frozen categories. Those combined businesses now are $130 million retail sales, make up 20% of the Rayos franchise, up 46% year on year. The Rayos brand, LTM now, $618 million up 40% year on year. So we're driving volume through distribution, awareness gains on a franchise that you know still has lots of headroom and room to grow. That's where I wanted to go here, because when you think about consumer products companies, I don't think about the growth rates that you guys are putting up. I think it's a CPI kind of growth business. So how much more headroom or how much more room to grow do you have with your existing brands before you need to go out and maybe consider some acquisitions? Sure. You know, really significant. Let's just take uh, Rayo's sauce, you know, for example. So if you take, you know, the Rayo's brand and we did achieve another statistic, just I'm still uh, riding on the heels of your first question, <laughs> literally, but we uh, achieved the number one share in the food channel. We're the number two brand overall now in sauce. When we acquired the brand, it was number eight and now number two, number one in the food channel. But uh, Rayo's, although we're a, you know, 16 to 17% dollar share, we're only a 7% unit share. When the market, uh, the other two market leaders, number one and number three, their unit share is 16 and 18. If you look at our penetration of sauce, it's 13%. Our peers are above 30%. The awareness of our brand is 58%. You have five other sauce brands that have awareness greater than 90%. And we have 14 average items on shelf when you have two other players with over 20. So you can just see just in sauce alone, there's enormous headroom. And that's why we talk continually that we're going to get this $600 million net sales business to $1 billion and beyond. And that's just sauce. And we could go over the same statistics for our soup business, which is only a two share, our dry pasta business, which is only a one three share. Mm-hmm. And our frozen entree business is less than a one share. And again, those three businesses combined are growing 
46% year on year. Real quick here, Todd, I know um, you. the only one we haven't really mentioned is Noosa, the yogurt uh, yep. product as well. I wonder, and you tell me, which project, product do you have the biggest challenge with uh, in terms of profits? And what is your thinking on when to kind of change things up on the product side, given some of those challenges? Sure. You know, I'd say, honestly, we're driving really, we do have 30% EBITDA growth in the quarter. Um, you know, as our pricing and productivity and, uh, you know, volume is more than offsetting the inflationary pressures that we have. I mean, we were public last year that a headwind, notably on the Noosa business, was milk pricing. It affected us, right. affected the category. Um, you know, milk prices are coming back down, so we're seeing a nice benefit. So, you know, I think the key headline last year would have been, you know, the yogurt business, as we've talked about it. But um, right now, there's a nice tailwind from milk and from resin, and there's also a tailwind. And there's some, there's still some, uh, and there's still some headwinds, whether it's tomatoes, olive oil, etc. But if you take um, proteins and you take milk and you take resin, those are all nice uh, commodity tailwinds for us uh, right now. Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Todd Lackman, he's the CEO and president of Sovos Brands. Again, the Nasdaq symbol. S-O-V-O, um, and the stock is uh, hitting a 52-week high uh, today as we speak. Um, IPO'd a couple of years ago, and they reported some uh, some numbers yesterday, which the street likes. Stock's up uh, on the news of the earnings. I'm talking about the food business. Now, Rayos, it's a famous restaurant in New York City. And you've been, Paul. Once. And, I mean, it's impossible <laughs> to get into, but I, back in the day, I knew a guy uh, who knew a guy. So uh, that got me in there, and it was, it was great. It was good, awesome. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.